the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. Would you like to see big tech cracked up? Would you like to see those big tech companies, the CEOs who testified yesterday, their companies, subject to antitrust prosecution? Before you uh, answer that question, remember the uh, premise of antitrust prosecution is consumer harm. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 6463-6DA, turnkey.pro text line. Uh, Jeff Bezos uh, made his uh, maiden appearance before a congressional committee yesterday. He was able to uh, provide his opening statement before he got hungry and had to snack and before uh, the great Amazon had technical difficulties in which he was gone for 10 minutes because their feed wasn't working. But OK, uh, I don't know much about uh, Jeff Bezos's uh, personal history because I just don't find him that interesting. Actually, many of these guys, they could be wildly uh, innovative and and smart in one particular sector, but as human beings, I find them, uh, many of them to be very one-dimensional. Uh, nevertheless, Bezos started out with that personal history, and it's actually um, quite compelling, it really is. I was born into great wealth, not monetary wealth, but it said the wealth of a loving family, a family that fostered my curiosity and encouraged me to dream big. My mom, Jackie, had me when she was a 17-year-old high school student in Albuquerque. Being pregnant in high school was not popular. The school tried to kick her out, but she was allowed to finish after my grandfather negotiated terms with the principal. She couldn't have a locker, no extracurriculars, and couldn't walk across the stage to get her diploma. She graduated and was determined to continue her education, so she enrolled in night school, bringing me, her infant son, to class with her throughout. My dad's name is Miguel. He adopted me when I was four. He was 16 when he came to the U.S. from Cuba by himself shortly after Castro took over. My dad didn't speak English, and he did not have an easy path. What he did have was grit and determination. He received a scholarship to college in Albuquerque, which is where he met my mom. Together with my grandparents, these hardworking, resourceful, and loving people made me who I am. It is a great pro-life story, isn't it? He, you would also think he wouldn't be so susceptible to supporting Castroista policies in this country like he has been. But nevertheless, uh, he did say something about this country. Uh, and uh, it wasn't to take a knee, I'll tell you that, Jeff Bezos. Still, with all of our faults and problems, the rest of the world would love even the tiniest sip of the elixir we have here in the U.S. Immigrants like my dad see what a treasure this country is. They have perspective and often can see it even more clearly 
than those of us who were lucky enough to be born here. It is still day one for this country, and even in the face of today's humbling challenges, I have never been more optimistic about our future. How about that from Jeff Bezos? I'm not saying he's not still a leftist. He is, and he made some overtures in that direction. But um, to hear one of those big tech CEOs actually make a sensible statement about America, the obvious statement, yes, we have flaws, man has fallen, so we're men and women, we have flaws, the country has flaws, so 330 million people interacting, it's not always going to be pretty. Um, But uh, perspective on this still being the beacon of freedom and opportunity the world over, and Jeff Bezos being one of the stories that pretty much can only happen in America. Remember when Barack Obama used to tell the story? How about you know, pretty much a, a, a guy named Barack Obama becoming uh, the head of state can pretty much only happen in America. I, I thought it was a remarkable moment. I, I don't think it'll be terribly remarked upon by the D.C. press corps because it doesn't fit the narrative. But uh, Jeff Bezos, personal pro-life story, uh, immigrant story, an American story, pro-life story, American story, immigrant story. Uh, American story, entrepreneurial success story, American story. How about that? I really think it should be amplified. Uh, now, it, you know, getting to the sum and substance of it, uh, Jim Jordan essentially gave the position that conservatives really have. They're they're not necessarily arguing. I think the free market types, like myself, not necessarily arguing that there's an antitrust problem with the big tech companies, although some are. Josh Hawley and Marco Rubio would be a couple of them, but I wouldn't necessarily call them free marketeers. Uh, The problem is a political one. And the problem is that uh, they have lied to their customers and to the American people, and in some cases to Congress too many times, most specifically Jack Dorsey, who misrepresented Twitter's position on censorship when he testified before Congress, notably absent yesterday. Uh, Jim Jordan laid it out uh, straight away during his five minutes. I'll just cut to the chase. Big tech's out to get conservatives. That's not a suspicion. That's not a hunch. That's a fact. July 20th, 2020, Google removes the homepages of Breitbart and the Daily Caller. Just last night, we learned Google has censored Breitbart so much, traffic has declined 99%. June 16th, 2020, Google threatens to demonetize and ban the Federalists. April 19th, 2020, Google and YouTube announce a policy censoring the content that conflicts with recommendations of the World Health Organization. Now think about that. The World Health Organization, the organization that lied to us, the organization that shielded for China. And if you contradict something they say, they can say whatever they want. They can lie for China. They can shield for China. You say something against them, you get censored. June 29, 2020, Amazon bans President Trump's account on Twitch after he raises concerns about defunding the police. June 4th, 2020, Amazon bans a book critical of the coronavirus lockdowns written by a conservative commentator. May 27th, 2020, Amazon Smile won't let you give to the Family Research Council and the Alliance Defense Fund, but you can give to Planned Parenthood. Facebook, June 19th, 2020, takes down posts from President Trump's re-election campaign. November 1st, 2018, Facebook silences a pro-life organization's advertisement. May 19th, 2016, Facebook... Former Facebook employees admit Facebook routinely suppresses conservative views. And I haven't even mentioned Twitter, who we actually invited, Mr. Chairman. We asked for you guys to invite them as one of our witnesses. You guys said, no, I haven't even mentioned them two years ago. They shadow banned two members of this committee. Four members of Congress were shadow banned two years ago. 435 in the House, 100 in the Senate, 535, only four, only four. 
Gates, Meadows, Nunes, Jordan, only four get shadow banned. And of course, what did Mr. Dorsey tell us? He said, oh, it was just a glitch in our algorithm. Just to, I asked him, what did you put in the algorithm? The name's Gates, Meadows, Nunes, Jordan? I mean, if I had a nickel for every time I heard it was just a glitch, I wouldn't be as wealthy as our witnesses, but I'd be doing all right. We've heard that excuse time and time again. May 28th, Twitter censors President Trump's tweet on the riots in Minneapolis. May 29th, 2020, Twitter censors White House, the White House for quoting the president's comments about the riots in Minneapolis. June 23rd, 2020, Twitter censors the president again for saying he'll enforce the rule of law against any autonomous zone in Washington, D.C. You can tweet all you want about the autonomous zone that happened in Seattle, but the president tweets that he's not going to have one in Washington, D.C. Oh, 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 nope, can't do that. You get banned, you get censored. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's important to document and to present the evidence. And uh, Jim Jordan was right to do so. This isn't uh, something that's being conjured up out of whole cloth. This is something that there's ample evidence to support. And um, Jordan presented it. But you don't want to engage in hipster antitrust law, do you? Which is to say we're not going to use antitrust law because there's been some discernible uh, consumer harm. And by the way, I don't really believe in antitrust law to begin with because monopolies don't exist except without except with government sanction. So if you didn't if you didn't have government sanctioning monopolies, you wouldn't have a need for antitrust. But but anyway, I digress. And if you want to get into that philosophical conversation, we can. Point is. It is it would be wrong for conservatives to advocate because we have this problem with tech CEOs lying and censoring that we're going to use antitrust law as the way to get at them, even though we know there really is no discernible consumer harm that would, on the merits, warrant antitrust prosecution. See what I'm saying? So I think we need to be a bit careful here. I think we need to focus on what the bill of particulars is and then talk about remedies that would be appropriate or arguments to be made that would be appropriate rather than just saying we have this tool. It's not really applicable to this harm, but we have no other way to get to this harm or this perhaps is the most uh, comprehensive way to get to this harm. So we're going to use it anyway. That's not really the rule of law, is it? Uh, and when we come back from silencing conservatives to try to, to take them out of office, We'll have more of Jim Jordan's commentary from yesterday's hearing. And I also, consistent with our commitment to institutional memory, want to claw back testimony from Dr. Robert Epstein before Senate subcommittee on Google specifically, but big tech generally, and their ability to influence an election from July of last year. That's all coming up next. If you leave, I won't cry. Podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the program. Before the break, we're talking about Jeff Bezos's testimony in front of uh, House Committee yesterday, and I want to get to uh, the point that Jim Jordan made. It's not just about shadow banning him and a few of his conservative colleagues. It's about trying to influence the outcome of the 2020 election, which they've explicitly said. So many of them, including uh, Google's post-2016 cry fest led by Larry and Sergey. 
Um, so let's uh, let's begin there. And then I want to loop in uh, Dr. Robert Epstein from testimony a year ago this time before a Senate subcommittee. The power these companies have to impact what happens during an election, what people, what American citizens get to see prior to their voting is pretty darn important. That's why this committee hearing is important. Look, we we all think the free market's great. We think competition's great. We love the fact that these are American companies. But what's not great is censoring people, censoring conservatives, and trying to impact elections. And if it doesn't end, there has to be consequences. There have to be consequences. That's what I'm concerned about, and I think what so many Americans are concerned about. Uh, and uh, so th- this harkens back to the testimony that was provided by uh, Dr. Uh, Robert Epstein when he testified before a Senate subcommittee, along with our friend Dennis Prager, uh, about six years of studying Google and how it manipulates search results and his projection as to how many votes uh, Google moved in the 2016 election and how many votes these big temp companies could move in the 2020 election if they worked in concert with one another. I've been a research psychologist for nearly 40 years. My PhD is from Harvard, and since 1981, I've published extensively on AI and other topics. Some of my research has focused on Google, on the company's massive surveillance operations, censorship capabilities, and unprecedented ability to manipulate the thinking of 2.5 billion people, soon to be 4-plus billion. I've written articles about Google for Time magazine, USA Today, that kind of thing, but also for The Daily Caller and even Russia's Sputnik News. I reach out to diverse audiences because I believe the threats posed by Google, and to a lesser extent Facebook, are so serious that everyone needs to know about them. Here are just three disturbing findings from my research which adheres to the very highest standards of scientific integrity. Number one, in 2016, Google's search algorithm likely impacted undecided voters in a way that shifted at least 2.6 million votes to Hillary Clinton, whom I supported. I know this because I preserved more than 13,000 election-related searches prior to Election Day, and Google's search results were significantly biased in favor of Secretary Clinton. I know the number of votes that shifted because I've conducted dozens of controlled experiments that measure how opinions shift when search results are biased. I call this shift SEAM, the Search Engine Manipulation Effect, which I first published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in 2015. Biased search results can easily produce shifts in the opinions and voting preferences of undecided voters by up to 80% in some demographic groups because people blindly trust high-ranking search results over lower ones. SEAM is an especially dangerous form of influence because it is, in effect, subliminal. It also leaves no paper trail for authorities to trace. It's an example of a short-lived or, quote, ephemeral experience. That's a phrase you'll find in internal emails that have leaked recently from Google. I'm now studying seven such manipulations, like SEAM, and unlike billboards or those Russian-placed ads, these manipulations are invisible 
and non-competitive. And it, that's what he's talking about. Uh, that's what uh, Jim Jordan was talking about, I, I should say, with respect to Dorsey. You know, the glitch, the technical glitch, the algorithm. And uh, in a 2015 or 2016 piece he wrote before the 2016 election, Dr. Epstein went through a bunch of scenarios of election manipulation. So he was warning about this in advance of 2016. Then he's warning about it last year in advance of 2020. The scariest possibility, the algorithm scenario. Under this scenario, all of Google's employees are innocent little lambs, but the software is evil. Google's search algorithm is pushing one candidate to the top of the rankings because of what the company coyly dismisses as organic search activity by users. It's harmless, you see, because it's all natural. Under this scenario, a computer program is picking our elected officials. To put it another way, our research suggests that no matter how innocent or disinterested Google's employees may be, Google's search algorithm, propelled by user activity, has been determining the outcomes of close elections worldwide for years with increasing impact every year because of the increasing Internet penetration. That's the seam he's talking about. Seam is powerful precisely because Google is so good at what it does. Its search results are generally superb, and people have a high trust in those top search returns. So, you know, and there's been criticism of his study and dismissal of his study, particularly from the left, that you can read as well. Do a Google search if you want, because that, of course, that just comes up first <laughs> to sort of to, to his point. But, uh, but but nonetheless, they're arguing about mainly, you know, how many votes is Google manipulating? Oh, two point six to ten million. They could impact 20 million votes in 2020. They're arguing degree, not kind. They're sort of underlying it, it, the, the argument they're making, the counter argument they're making concedes the point that there is this ability to influence because it's so obvious and that there is uh, something, most likely the algorithms that are driving a particular uh, search result when it comes to particular topics like, say, 2020 election and presidential candidates. You know, it was it was good for Jim Jordan to bring this up just as it was Ted Cruz to bring it up with Epstein uh, and, and go back and forth with Epstein about this last year in Senate subcommittee. But but there has not been enough attention. There's been a lot of attention to mail and voting and there that deserves to be focused upon. But but not enough about this. And yes, the occasion of the big tech CEOs testifying yesterday was an opportune time to bring it up. But this should be something that is brought up more because one of the things that Epstein suggests if you're unable to get Google to comply with, for example, posting the, uh, you know, the, 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 the back office distillation of its algorithms for review. Then you have to undermine the credibility of the search results and flag Google and perhaps these other tech companies, the way Jim Jordan ticked off all those examples as untrustworthy when it comes to providing uh, fair, even handed information or a forum for the distribution of information from both sides. That has to be undermined so people are more skeptical than, frankly, they already are. They have good user experiences with Amazon, probably with, uh, I think, generally speaking, with these other tech companies, too. And that's all well and good. But with respect to information flow, that has to be addressed, and it has to be addressed more forcefully and vociferously by Republicans starting with Trump.
political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show, and uh, just going back to some of the questions I think would be generous, uh, screeds that Attorney General Barr was treated to during his uh, testimony on the Hill, testimony that the Judiciary Committee Democrats weren't really interested in receiving from Barr. They were just using him as a prop to uh, say things like this. This is, uh, again, Washington Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. Listen to uh, her claim of the discrepancy she sees between the Department of Justice response to uh, protesters. In how you react as the attorney general, the top cop in this country, when white men with swastikas storm a government building with guns, there is no need for the president to, quote, activate you because they're getting the president's personal agenda done. But when black people and people of color protest police brutality, systemic racism, and the president's very own lack of response to those critical issues, then you forcibly remove them with armed federal officers, pepper bombs, because they are considered terrorists by the president. You take an aggressive approach to Black Lives Matter protests, but not to right-wing extremists threatening to lynch a governor if it's for the Trump's, if it's for the president's benefit. Did I get it right, Mr. Barr? I have responsibility for the federal government, and the White House is the seat of the Mr. Barr, let branch. me just make it clear. Not you are the, supposed the to Michigan authorities the can people handle, of the United States of America, not violate people's First Amendment mm-hmm. rights. You <laughs> are supposed to uphold democracy and secure equal justice under the law, not violently dismantle certain protesters based on the president's personal agenda. Mm -hmm. And when uh, President Trump and Attorney General Barr are not uh, promoting white supremacy under the color of law, according to Representative Jayapal, they are uh, actively working to uh, needlessly kill Americans via their response to COVID. That's not me saying it. That's Democrat representative from Florida, Debbie Mercarsel Powell. What am I supposed to say to my constituents when they ask me if the government has done everything in its power to protect their loved ones from dying? You tell me, Mr. Barr, what am I supposed to tell them? I would tell them that managing this kind of thing requires a lot of uh, difficult choices and weighing different uh, consequences. I'm not going to lie. I am not going to lie to my constituents. I am going to tell them that President Donald Trump and the Attorney General working together are not following health guidelines. They're letting Americans die needlessly because of political reasons. That is what I will tell them, Mr. Barr. Thank you. Was this another banner day for Democrats? Did they give uh, Attorney General Barr some sort of comeuppance that uh, feeds the appetites of their base and energizes turnout, uh, helps advance the cause of Joe Biden's presidential candidacy? For help answering those questions, we're pleased to be joined again by Ted Van Dyke. He's a former Democrat presidential candidate advisor and author of Heroes, Hacks and Fools. He also penned an op-ed this week in The Wall Street Journal. We previously discussed why do Democrats defend disorder uh, asking sort of incredulously why they seem to be. Ted, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. 
Thank you, Dan. Good to be with you. Uh, before we get to uh, your piece and, and the specifics of uh, what some Democrat mayors are doing and how the the federal Demo- the national Democrats are responding, what about uh, that hearing yesterday or the other day, I should say, with uh, Attorney General Barr and some of the commentary, some of the diatribes like those that I've played? Are those helpful? No, not at all. I thought they were irresponsible, and I think uh, a majority of citizens would uh, agree uh, they they were just inappropriate and. It's it's a total misreading by these people of where the American people stand and what they want. And and so, you know, it's one thing to say, well, the, in particular districts, they can get away with this as members of Congress. It's another thing to say in a national election, Joe Biden can get away with suborning this, which is in part, I think, the point of your piece. And so what is it that prevents uh, Biden, even though he made some sort of overture the other day in Wilmington about uh, prosecuting violent offenders? What is it prevents full-throated defenses of law and order for everybody, regardless of skin color or cause? Uh, I think uh, it's, it simply reflects a misreading of, again, of the, the American people and where they stand. Uh, you know, the Democratic Party has always been for principal dissent, and I've been a part of it. But uh, that's different from uh, violent chaos and uh, disorder, not only in the streets, but in congressional hearing rooms. Uh, people don't want that. Well, the American people, more than anything else, want some unity. Uh, they want an end to conflict. Uh, they want a sense that grown-ups are in charge. And uh, we're going in the wrong direction. Uh, when we come back with uh, Ted Van Dyke, I want to continue this conversation and fold in some of the comments of uh, Mayor Jenny Durkin of Seattle, a former federal prosecutor, uh, almost shockingly, but uh, it's a true story. More with Ted Van Dyke, former Democratic presidential candidate advisor and author of Heroes, Hacks, and Fools, right after this. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the program. We're speaking with Ted Van Dyke, former Democrat presidential candidate advisor, author of the book Heroes, Hacks and Fools, and uh, also the author of this uh, op-ed in the journal this week that's gotten a lot of attention. Why do Democrats defend disorder Uh, in which you write in part, uh, Ted, I can't imagine Joe Biden as vice president or a senator hesitating to denounce lawlessness, nor can I imagine past congressional state and local leaders condoning such destruction. So what's changed? Uh, what has changed is that there is a very vocal and avid part of the party that has gained temporary ascendancy and uh, is controlling the, the dialogue. And I think a lot of elected officials are misreading the public at large. You mentioned uh, Mayor Gurkin in Seattle. I just finished doing a, a Facebook post on what she had to say. It was quite remarkable. I live near Seattle. The Seattle police chief yesterday did a press briefing about an attack last Saturday on a precinct station. Injuries to 29 officers. The demonstrators en route to the station broke shop windows and created property damage. The police chief displayed lethal weapons, including explosives that had seized from a vehicle at the station site used by the demonstrators. Mayor Durkin then stepped forward, and I expect her to to say uh, she was drawing a line and the violence had to end. Instead, she recited how she'd been herself participant in past demonstrations and then began to attack President Trump. You know, she comes from a law enforcement background. She has to know that a mayor's first responsibility is maintenance of public order. That's where we start. 
So uh, I would nominate Durkin as demonstrator and the, and the police chief for mayor. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, uh, she also said the other day on CNN that what Trump was doing by dispatching federal law enforcement to cities like Portland was a dry run for martial law. Uh, do we yes. in, do we instead actually have a dry run for anarchy under mayors like Jenny Durkin? Yeah, I think they heed a, a very noisy and vocal minority in their own communities, which they believe uh, constitutes important majority opinion and are responding to it. And the fact is that any president, as I said in my Wall Street Journal piece, any president facing these current disorders would first denounce them. Then he would ask the mayors of the of the cities if they needed federal help. If they said yes, uh, he would send federal help immediately. If the, if they said no, but the disorders continued, uh, he would send federal uh, forces to first defend uh, federal facilities and then to help otherwise as he deemed necessary, because he does have ultimate responsibility for the public safety of the American people. Do you think um, it would be beneficial to Joe Biden, it would be appropriate as well as politically beneficial for him to publicly chastise the comments of like a Jenny Durkin or a Ted Wheeler in Portland? Would that be helpful to him and would that be appropriate? It would be, but I, I wonder if he's if he's gone so far down this road that's now impossible for him as a practical matter. Really has cast his lot with the uh, AOC Bernie wing of the party. It's in his platform. Uh, he's been in Delaware away from really general opinion, just kind of uh, hold out. So for him to suddenly emerge and go back to the old Joe Biden would be kind of jarring, and, and uh, I don't expect it. Uh, it was interesting, this uh, piece in The Atlantic uh, uh, this week uh, about uh, you know Trump still has this path to victory. The Atlantic starts trying to uh, you know, tamp down the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the over-exuberance about the election yeah. being over. Um, sure. and, and a former campaign co-chairman of Bernie Sanders compared voting uh, for Biden like eating a bowl of excrement. That doesn't sound like a lot of enthusiasm, despite those concessions that you mentioned no, uh, from no, from no, Joe Biden. And, and so, so did, you know, is there any way that Joe Biden can ever really satisfy the, uh, you know, the Bernie bros and, and sisses, the socialists in the party? Uh, no, he never will. And uh, I would draw an analogy. In 1971-72, I was policy director for the McGovern campaign. And uh, our principal problem there, McGovern was strongly anti-war and actually was very moderate on most domestic and other issues. Mm-hmm. But uh, a majority of our delegates and of uh, and the activists in the party at that time uh, were had more interest in their own agendas than they did in electing a president or even local-level candidates. And uh, as you remember, we came out of the convention and, and uh, media and other and Republicans were calling us the acid amnesty and abortion campaign. <laughs> it had nothing to do with Georgia McGovern. It had to do with his, his supporters and how they were presenting themselves. And I think Joe has gotten himself in a position somewhat analogous. He does have an advantage. However, people are fed up. They want to change. But uh, he has. there was an old rule we used to use in politics, which is always run on hope, never on hate or fear. So Joe has to offer hope. He has to have, offer a positive agenda. He has to offer a unifying, uh, hopeful message. He can't just win uh, counting on Trump to collapse. Uh, in addition to the uh, the violence in urban centers, uh, you talk about that the people sort of around Joe Biden, uh, but part his constituents, as, as you were suggesting about McGovern. Uh, yeah. Does he have a problem with the the the, the Jacobins uh, that are uh, canceling people professionally and that that sort of culture where everybody's well, think, everybody's a racist and you can't say certain things and you can lose your job, your livelihood, your reputation if you 
uh, innocently say something uh, that somebody finds offensive? I think he certainly should, but I don't think he will because his practical situation is that uh, he would fear alienated, alienating people in the cancel culture. Uh, it's uh, I oppose it greatly. I mean, the whole business of uh, institutional racism, white privilege, toxic masculinity, these are just slogans uh, intended to divide people and uh, spread some fear. They don't have any real meaning, uh, but they are being used as if they were reality, not only by uh, people in politics, but by a lot in the media. Well, if, uh, you, if you think Joe Biden should uh, offer these responses to the uh intellectual Jacobins to the violent protesters to mayors like Jenny Durkin, but he's not going to standing here today. Do you think he wins the election? Oh, there's so many variables between now and then there are the debates. Uh, there's the coronavirus, the state of the economy. Uh, there, there's anything that gun might take place offshore in foreign policy. Uh, there's the physical well-being of the candidates. Uh, who knows? I mean, uh, I was Vice President Humphrey's assistant when he lost narrowly to, to Nixon in 1968. Uh, we were 15 points behind in late September and almost pulled it out. Right. Uh, Mike, Mike Dukakis is 22 points ahead of <laughs> Bush the Elder and managed to lose. Uh, in 1992, Ross Perot had a strong lead over both Clinton and Bush until he began self-destroying himself. Uh, but he ended up still with 19% of the total vote. So... Uh, you know, there are big, there can be big swings depending upon events and actually swings of anywhere from three to six points on the weekend before the election. So it's way too, way too soon. Do you have any uh, um, uh, concerns that Joe Biden will try to negotiate after the fact with respect to the debates? You think you, there will be three presidential debates and Joe Biden will participate? I think he certainly is his intention. We'll just have to see what happens. But I can't imagine his backing out. He is Ted Van Dyke, former Democrat presidential candidate advisor, author of Heroes, Hacks and Fools. Ted, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Dan. Thank Take you. care. The more you'll know, this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the show and uh, a little bit of uh, COVID-19 update in a a number of categories. One, obviously some sad news uh, we learned this morning that uh, former GOP presidential candidate, former Kansas City Fed Reserve Board Chairman, former Godfather's Pizza Executive Herman Cain passed away at the age of 74 after uh, being hospitalized uh, just a few weeks ago for uh, COVID-19. He learned, and some of this reporting is just so cynical, uh, using somebody's death to try to make a political point that is uh, sans evidence. Uh, He was he uh, tested positive for COVID-19 about two weeks after he attended President Trump's rally in Tulsa. And of course, the the insinuation um, and there's a picture of him sitting with uh, friends at that uh, Tulsa rally, part of the Black Voices for Trump group. Uh, Herman Cain, um, uh, through a representative, said there's no way of knowing where he contracted. And oh, by the way, I cite again a study that the press won't that was done by San Diego State academics that found that looked at Tulsa and found no increase in infections that could be linked to uh, the congregation of Trump supporters in Tulsa for that rally. So, you know, how, how about just, you know, memorializing the man, uh, Mr. 999, 
memorializing him in a fun way, in a positive way, because he was a fun and positive guy that I had the chance to to speak with on a number of occasions uh, throughout my radio career, memorializing the man rather than trying to make him some political prop to take a shot at the president. It's just so sick. It really is sick. Uh, so rest in peace, Herman Cain. Uh, additionally, we uh, have uh, Dr. Robert Redfield, the uh, director of the CDC, confirming something that uh, was expected, at least per a study that was done by the Wellbeing Tr- Trust that we reported on this show several weeks ago. The uh, projection was that there would be excess deaths, as the terminology is used, Excess deaths of despair in the number of 75,000. These are deaths uh, by suicide or addiction-related deaths over and above the annual average. And as uh, you have teachers' unions locking down schools and the politicians endorsing the teachers' unions' position, consider what Dr. Redfield had to say yesterday. But there has been another cost that we've seen, particularly in high schools. Uh, we're seeing, uh, sadly, far greater suicides now than we are deaths from COVID. We're seeing far greater deaths from drug overdose uh, that are above excess than what we had as background than we are seeing deaths from COVID. If only we had hiked taxes, if only we had removed police, if only we had added to the union's ranks, if only we had put a moratorium on charters and opportunity scholarships, right? This could have all been avoided, these uh, suicides, these deaths of despair, because those are the teachers' union's demands for supporting reopening of schools. It's not me saying it. Demandsafeschools.org, which I mentioned before. Go check it out. Just like I tell you, go read for yourself. BlackLivesMatter.com. Go read for yourself what they believe. Demandsafeschools.org. Go read for themselves what they demand and how they demand it. The tagline, Ed Equity or Else. Well, now you know what the or else is. This is Dan Prof. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. Interesting piece by Rich Thau at CNN.com, no less. The voters who are still backing Trump. Rich Thau is the president and co-founder of a research firm called Engages, specializes in message testing and message refinement for trade associations and advocacy groups. He's been doing focus grouping as part of this swing voter project. He uh, writes, I I understand pollsters are consistently telling us Biden is far ahead of Trump. I'm not looking to pick a fight as their sample sizes are much larger than than mine. That said, as a focus group moderator, I'm hearing strong support for President Trump from a critical sliver of the electorate. Each month for the past 17 months, I've had a unique window into the Americans largely responsible for giving President Trump his slim electoral college victory, the so-called Obama-Trump swing voters across the upper Midwest. Our swing voter project has uncovered that many of these people who live in places such as Canton, Ohio, Davenport, Iowa, Erie, Pennsylvania, Macomb County, Michigan, prefer Trump over Biden. In fact, 22 of 33 respondents in these four most recent locations feel this way. And over the first year of the project, that was March 19th through February 2020, more than two thirds of the Obama-Trump voters said they would take Trump over Obama 
in a hypothetical matchup. That's atrophied a bit in the intervening six months, perhaps, but still perhaps underestimating the strength of Trump's base voters and their stickiness. And this seems to be something the left consistently does. Perhaps it's just a matter of self-delusion. There was a piece of Daily Beast this week, a Trump campaign worried about his base crumbling. I don't think so. And the reason his base is not going to crumble, even when they don't like what he does, is because he has largely done or attempted to do what he said he would as a candidate. He's also been able, I think, largely, to convey the feeling that even when it's uncomfortable how he fights for you, he's fighting for you. He is on your side of the skirmish line fighting out against those who said they would represent you for generations and did not and silenced you, really, before even the cancel culture took hold. There was something uh, Trump did yesterday that I thought was really, uh, this was Tuesday, actually, that I thought was really interesting, and it shows for anybody who thought, oh, he doesn't even want to win. This is a guy who absolutely wants to win, and he's showing an ability to be resilient in a way that I don't think Biden or the Democrats can be. They're too basically consumed with navel-gazing. Trump, the other day, talking about Tony Fauci and Fauci's popularity, versus his. Listen to all the way to the end. This is important because he did the same thing in one of those Sunday talk show interviews just a few days ago as well. I have a very good relationship with Dr. Fauci. You know, it's sort of interesting. We've listened to Dr. Fauci. I haven't always agreed with him, and that's, I think, pretty standard. That's okay. Uh, he did not want us to ban our this, this put up the ban to China when China was heavily infected very badly, Wuhan. Uh, He didn't want to do that, and I did, and other things. And he told me I was right, and he told me I saved tens of thousands of lives, which was generous, but it's, uh, you know, I think it's fact. Then I banned, I did the ban on Europe. Uh, But I get along with him very well, and I agree with a lot of what he said. Uh, So, you know, it's interesting. Uh, He's got a very good approval rating, and I like that. It's good. Because remember, he's working for this administration. He's working with us, John. We, We could have gotten other people. We could have gotten somebody else. It didn't have to be Dr. Fauci. He's working with our administration. And for the most part, we've done pretty much what he and others, Dr. Burks and others who are terrific, recommended. And he's got this high approval rating. So why don't I have a high approval rating with respect and the administration with respect to the virus? We should have a very high because what we've done in terms of uh, we're just reading off about the masks and the gowns and the ventilators and numbers that nobody's seen and the testing at 55 million tests we tested more than anybody in the world i have a graph that i'd love to show you perhaps you've seen it where we're up here and the rest of the world is down at a level that's just a tiny fraction of what we've done in terms of testing so it sort of is curious a man works for us with us very closely dr fauci and dr burks also highly thought of and yet they're highly thought of but nobody likes me and he went on to say i guess it must be my personality so two things one being gracious to fauci and burks that's smart but that the whole thing he did the same thing about his personality the sunday interview being self-effacing which runs counter to you know the trump persona and the criticism of trump i think that's purposeful i think it's really smart i think that sort of temperance is going to be wildly helpful to him And the other thing it does, it gets you off his personality and focus. Yeah. okay. he even concedes that he's abrasive, that he's not always, uh, you know, the most charitable person and so forth. But maybe I should think about the substance of what he's done. 
it is true that he employs Tony Fauci. He could bring in, you know, John Ioannidis from Stanford or something. He probably should have a long time ago, but uh, he could do that. He's not done that. He has been very charitable and gracious to Fauci and Burks, who I like and who I respect. He, uh, he recognizes his shortcomings, his personality, and why people, why he rubs people the wrong way. Maybe I should think about what he's actually done rather than just uh, his persona. I think it's really interesting, this pivot that he's made just in the last few days. For more on uh, all of this, the uh, messaging as we move into the 90-day sprint here, we're pleased to be joined by former House Speaker Newt Gingrich, uh, also 2020. 12 presidential candidate, of course, New York Times bestselling author of the recently released Trump and the American Future, Solving the Great Problems of Our Time. Speaker Gingrich, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Delighted to be with you. And I thought that was actually a fascinating uh, discussion you were having about Trump and Fauci and, and uh, how the whole coronavirus thing has evolved. Yeah, I mean, do, do you see that as well? Or am I reading too much into that, that, that the self-effacing Trump is a better Trump? Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think he has realized at least I hope he has realized, that the country really wants him to be uh, inclusive and concerned and presidential because we're, we have some real problems. I mean, when you take everything and wrap it into one, the government imposed depression, the government imposed isolation, the disease itself, uh, et cetera. Now, this is probably the biggest crisis we've had as a country since World War II. And I think people want to have a leader who is stable and reassuring. And Trump did a great job of being somebody who broke up the old order. And as long as we were in prosperity and safety, uh, people, I think, were very happy to have him take on the deep state and have him rattle the cage and change things. But I think now that they're seeing all these other factors, I think that they really want reassurance. And I think it's much more effective for him to uh, focus on being reassuring. That's part of why I wrote Trump and the American future, I, I think that he, he is a remarkable figure who has achieved a great deal. And I think this election is probably the most decisive choice since Abraham Lincoln in 1864, in that uh, if you end up with a Biden-Pelosi-Schumer world, it'll be so radically different from uh, the world you would have had. I wanted to get to your reaction to um, the Joe Biden campaign message. It, it seems to me it's a little bit of Warren Harding redux, right? Return to normalcy. And we had this conversation with James Pogue, who's an essayist who uh, uh, wrote a piece over at Harper's Magazine, spent a month in Kenosha, Wisconsin, in the run up to the Biden Sanders primary, and then spent a little time after talking to a lot of people in that swing area, in that swing state who voted for Trump last go around. And uh, one of the things that he suggests is this idea of, you know, going back to some fictitious normal is actually the most dangerous message that Joe Biden could adopt, because, number one, it's not possible People don't believe there is any sort of normal that we're going to go back to. Number two, his own party doesn't want to go back to whatever that normal was. They want revolution, as we're seeing play out in the streets, in part, and certainly with the rhetoric of the backbenchers like AOC. And so it's not a credible message, and it's not something that is animating to the base of his party. Do, do you agree that the return to normalcy, it sounds good on its face, but it's a guaranteed loser for Biden? There has not been a... Harding's a good example, because Harding, of course, was in a different era, and, and back then it actually did mean something, because it was coming out of World War One and a very deep depression, which lasted very, a very short time. The depression of 1920-21 was only about 18 months, uh, and, uh, and, of course, the Spanish flu. So he could use it in a way that people believed it. But in the first, first place, anything Biden proposes which suggests it would require strong, energetic leadership is a dead loser. I mean, I tell people all the time, 
when you think about Xi Jinping, the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, president of China, is a very tough, smart guy. And you say to yourself, all right, we need to put an American president in to negotiate with him. Do you want a tough guy like Trump, or do you want a guy like Biden who will fall asleep halfway through the meeting? And that's why I think Biden has a problem. And I think there's nothing Biden can offer. He can make promises. Ultimately, it's going to be Biden, Schumann, Pelosi as a team. They're going to offer extraordinary left-wing ideas. I mean, Pelosi got 207 Democrats to vote for a $1,200 bonus for every illegal immigrant. Now, why you would want a Pelosi bonus for illegal immigrants is... Yeah, you have to be pretty far to the left to think this is a clever idea. That's the sort of stuff that they're into, and they, they just, I think they get further and further away from the average American. He is former House Speaker Newt Gingrich, 2020-2012 presidential candidate as well, as we all know. New York Times bestselling author, the most recent offering, Trump and the American Future, Solving the Great Problems of Our Times. Speaker Gingrich, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Great to be with you. danproffshow.com Welcome back to the show. We were just talking with uh, former House Speaker Newt Gingrich about um, a uh, sly messaging pivot by President Trump, being gracious to the advisors that he's been listening to on the COVID-19 response, Fauci and Burks. Even though Fauci now is talking about um, eye shields in addition to masks. Now masks aren't enough. It's going to be eye shields, too. That's what he said Wednesday. Then it'll be the full N95 body condom. Then it'll be uh, uh, hyperbaric chambers. But I digress. It was a good messaging pivot where he was praiseworthy of Fauci and Burks and self-effacing with respect to him and his personality. Well, that has been disrupted a bit by a tweet this morning that has people aghast, of course. Trump tweeting with universal mail in voting, not absentee voting, which is good. 2020 will be the most inaccurate and fraudulent election in history. It will be a great embarrassment to the USA. Delay the election until people can properly, securely and safely vote, question mark. And of course, uh, it's phrased as a question. Uh, everybody is rushing to advance their the, the long held conspiracy theories of Trump won't accept the election results. Trump is going to try to cancel the election. He's going to try to delay the election. I think this is just President Trump's uh, rather inartful way of raising the specter of the opportunity for fraud and disenfranchisement correspondingly, but not exclusively through fraud, also through confusion, disenfranchisement when it comes to November 3rd. Uh, he could just say that straight away. He could cite the case studies that we've talked about on this show in New Jersey, New York City, where there's litigation over a congressional primary, two Democrats, Carolyn Maloney, the incumbent and her her challenger over the irregularities in that mail in election. He could just cite those Patterson, New Jersey, and New York City. But instead, he does it in the most provocative way possible to give um, fodder to the conspiracy theorists and the hysterics in the media. So not the way I would have necessarily chose to do it. But but again, I think he's just trying to draw attention to all the problems. And look, these are problems actually being documented by those same some of those same media outlets that you can be sure their White House correspondents will be full hair on fire. For example, a, a little experiment that a reporter with the CBS affiliate in New York did mailing in a 100 
ballots, not really ballots, but you know something that looked and felt like a ballot to see how many actually got returned. You know, what, what's the attrition rate with actual delivery and delivery time of the post office? That's not necessarily been um, considered either in this context. Listen to this report. We decided to test it, sending 100 mock ballots simulating 100 voters from locations all across Philadelphia to a P.O. box we set up to represent a local election office. A couple days later, we mailed 100 more using the same size envelopes and the same class of mail as real ballots here. To approximate the weight, we even folded mock votes into every one. In the following week, we checked our P.O. box for the results. Mail pickup notice, there's more. When we went to collect everything, though, most of our votes seemed to be lost. That's all I have back there right now. You're short, huh? You're you're totally short. I believe you. All right, good. Have a good day. Okay, take care. We had to ask for a manager. We're trying to do something about mailing ballots. And explain ourselves before someone finally found our votes. Okay, thank you. One, two. We soon discovered another problem, missorted mail. Two pieces of it. We got a birthday card from Mike to Ronnie. Have a sweet B-Day. Get it? There's a B on top. When the birthday greetings ended, 12, 13, we found a bigger issue. 21% of our votes hadn't materialized after four days. And the batch we'd mailed a week prior, some of those were missing too. So of our 100 ballots, 97 arrived, which sounds pretty good, unless you consider the fact that that means three people who tried to vote by mail in our mock election were in fact disenfranchised by mail. In a close election, 3% could be pivotal, especially in what's expected to be a record year for mail-in voting. We're going to see somewhere between probably 80 and 100 million voters um, receiving their ballot that way. The Postal Service says voters should mail their return ballots at least one week prior to the due date. But nearly half of all states still allow voters to request ballots less than a week before the election. And so, you know, 3% of 100 million, that's 3 million people, if I got my grade school arithmetic, right? Three million people being disenfranchised. Potentially, I'm not saying that scales from that one little hundred vote experiment, but it is another issue to be raised in addition to all of the real world issues raised in the Patterson, New Jersey and New York City primaries that have recently been held that provide some insight into legitimate concerns. Oh, and by the way, this whole uh, zeitgeist for a all vote by mail election It can cut in ways that you may not anticipate if you're a proponent of that just because Trump is an an opponent. A poll conducted by a global strategy group for Next Gen America, which is a group that's primarily focused on engaging and turning out young voters, reports, and this is from NPR, NPR reporting, more than half of young people lack resources to vote by mail. This is sort of remarkable, particularly this uh, comment you're going to hear from Next Gen America's executive director, but it's remarkable, but it doesn't mean it's not real. The problem is we've never voted in a pandemic before, and some of these young people have never even voted before. That's true. And so when we look at information about how to print out or do you have the ability to print out a ballot request form or do you know how to get stamps or do you even know where to find more information? We're uh, really understanding that we have a big job to do, said Ben Wessel, Next Gen America's executive director. It's just, I mean, I, I I'm not laughing, but I, I you know, you don't think of something when you like this. If you've been around for a minute, an 18 year old who's never voted and perhaps ever been to a post office, never even mailed anything. 
Do you know how to get stamps even? Something as simple as that. It's interesting that uh, he raises that issue among others. Also, there are others who are suggesting that um, there's a, you know, an intimidation factor with the process. Mary Pat Hector, who's a 22-year-old, says she's planning to vote in person in November. She's also spoken to people who are skeptical of mail-in voting. A lot of Georgia, she's in Georgia, a lot of vo- Georgia voters are actually afraid to vote by mail. And that's just something we can't afford to have happen. Many people apply for an absentee ballot, never receive the ballot via mail, pointing up the New York City, the CBS uh, affiliate New York's point about the mail system. And they're afraid these same tactics will occur during the November in the November election. That's just something we can't afford, she reiterated. You know, and, and again, remember, the administration elections are state and local matters. And so there are going to be uh, very different experiences via, uh, you know, p- by state and by locality. It just cuts a lot of different ways. And the bottom line is this. Do you want an uh, an election system that provides the most confidence and the most integrity and the most confidence in the integrity of the election? Or do you want something that's willy nilly that has this sort of exposure? Trump's tweet notwithstanding in the way he approached the issues that are legitimate in terms of concerns to be raised there. This is not just about It's not just about it's not at all about trying to disenfranchise anybody, not trying to disenfranchise anybody. Nobody's trying to overturn uh, the way that states, different states uh, uh, govern their absentee ballot programs. And oh, by the way, the president can't delay the election. As we know, that's uh, a matter for Congress. That's not going to happen, clearly. Uh, And the president certainly knows that, which is why he's just trying to provocatively raise these concerns by the way that he tweeted out. But they are real concerns. And again, look at Democrat primary elections in a municipal election in Patterson, New Jersey, and the Democrat primary in New York City. And tell me again that there's nothing to worry about. This is Dan Proff. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. While Attorney General Barr was uh, pantsing Democrat socialists in the House Judiciary Committee, and that's not a pretty picture, particularly if it's Nadler's pants. Uh, and they were focused on reclaiming their time. Any moment they allowed Attorney General Barr to actually offer an utterance. The uh, news that Attorney General Barr made, as we mentioned yesterday, was the appointment of a U.S. attorney from Texas to look into the unmaskers from the previous administration. And this was a topic that Maria Bartiromo picked up over at Fox Business in a very spirited exchange she had with one Valerie Jarrett, the former right hand of uh, President Obama, still, I think, a housemate. Yeah. Valerie Jarrett, uh, top advisor, President Obama. And it's very interesting, the approach that Valerie Jarrett takes, which will come through quite clearly, which is to say old news. All these matters are unresolved. Okay. There is a pending Durham investigation, but it's old news. We need to focus on the present. Why can't we do both? Why can't we focus on unresolved issues of the past as well as on pressing needs in the present? I think we can. 
Nice try, Valerie Jarrett. Maria Bartiroma, to her credit, wasn't having any of it. If people want to have an investigation about what happened 40 years ago, they should do that. But aren't you concerned about what's going on right now? Aren't you worried about the integrity of our upcoming elections? Aren't you worried about how we're going to have a safe and fair election? Yes, that's why I'm asking you this question. That's what, Valerie, that's exactly why I'm, wor I'm asking you these questions, because I am a patriot and do not want to see people in positions of power put their finger on the scale and make up a story that there's collusion with a foreign power when there's absolutely no evidence of that. And if the powers that be knew that there was no evidence of that in early January, I want to make sure that we do not have the powers in government spying on political campaigns because the other political campaign paid for it. We know that Hillary Clinton paid for the dossier. So this was an election year. You've got one campaign paying for dirt on another campaign, and you've got the amazing intelligence agencies of our government weaponized. So that's what has taken place here. You're saying you knew nothing about it? You were President Obama's right hand. And a lot of people wonder how much President Obama directed this. So I ask you, did President Obama direct any of this? That's not how it works. That's not how our investigations work. That we leave that to the intelligence community to bring forward information, and and, and the dossier, I would imagine, would be one piece of a much bigger puzzle. And so, if you're saying, is it important to make sure that there isn't influence? And actually, the Mueller report didn't conclude that there wasn't any wrongdoing. In fact, he was explicit in saying quite the opposite. And so, I don't think we should read in where well, there hasn't my... been actually any conclusions to that effect yet. You're making statements that actually just, haven't been Just to be clear, just to be clear, Robert Mueller said no collusion. Michael Horowitz, the IG uh, of the FBI, said that the dossier was, quote, unquote, an essential piece of all of this investigating of the Trump campaign. Essential piece was the word Michael Horowitz used. So you say it was part of a larger uh, mosaic. We have no evidence of that. We only have evidence of the dossier. Mm hmm. We have no evidence of that, uh, but that's not the perspective of Valerie Jarrett. That's not her job. Her job is to say things that aren't true, to misdirect and to try to close off. The uh, Mueller report says something quite the opposite of no collusion. No, it explicitly said no American colluded with the Russians to impact the 2016 election, which necessarily includes President Trump and his entire campaign. No American. That's what it said. So why would Valerie Jarrett feel the need to uh, you know, provide the the gaslighting that she tried to provide on Fox Business. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by John Yu, Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and the author of the new book, Defender-in-Chief, Donald Trump's Fight for Presidential Power. Professor Yu, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Oh, hi. Thanks for having me back. Uh, I wanted to, to get your take on the import of um, that news that Barr made about uh, the U.S. attorney tasked with investigating the unmaskings that were done at the end of the Obama administration, uh, particularly as it pertains to General Flynn, but not necessarily limited to him. And then, you know, that, that in context of uh, the, the Valerie Jarrett argument uh, that's shared by uh, many in Obama world that, you know, we just move on. This is all old news and so on. It's vitally important that we have an investigation and find out what happened, because if what appears to be true is true, you had a serious violation of the norms and standards that have guided our intelligence agencies and the way our the relation of we the people to our government. Because if what looks like happened happened, then one party, the one in power, used the intelligence agencies of our government 
to launch an investigation using all these great powers that were designed to go after terrorists or go after spies and used it to try to investigate the opposition political party. When we come back with Professor Yu, I want to uh, talk about this manufactured controversy uh, surrounding federal law enforcement's presence in cities like Portland. That's coming up next. Have a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Cal Berkeley Law Professor John Yu. And uh, as to the matter of dispatching federal law enforcement, is there anything controversial about uh, dispatching federal law enforcement to protect federal property, whether it's in Portland or Seattle or Chicago or anywhere else? This is a theme uh, that I talk about in this book of mine that just came out, Defender in Chief, is that you have people who are so outraged at President Trump, who so want to bring him down, they are willing to make the most extreme arguments. They're willing to upend constitutional understandings in order to try to stop them. And so take this example of sending federal law enforcement to cities. If you were to read, say, even, let's say, the opinion pages of the New York Times, you would read people saying this is the dispatch of an occupying Trump army to cities, that this is the beginning of fascism in the United States. This isn't fascism. This isn't an occupying Trump army. This is a power that presidents have used since President Washington on, uh, including President Lincoln defending Fort Sumter, including President Eisenhower sending troops to escort kids to enforce desegregation. This is the power of the federal government to do two things. One is to defend federal buildings and federal property and federal personnel, or to enforce federal criminal law to There are people behind these protests who are moving money and people between states or who are communicating over the Internet or who are breaking drug laws or gun laws. Then the federal government has always had a right to enforce the law, and that includes sending officers to try to arrest and try and bring people to justice who are breaking our laws. And, and the, you know, the idea that this is somehow in controversy among law enforcement is also fictitious. So uh, there's a deal cut yesterday whereby finally the governor of Oregon has interceded and she will dispatch state police to protect federal property, including that courthouse that the arsonist tried to burn down in Portland. And the federal law enforcement that had been dispatched will stay there as backup right now, letting state police take the lead. And if they prove that they're able to maintain order, then it's likely they'll be recalled by the federal government. That is just not a controversial event on the law enforcement side. Maybe controversial what the rioters are doing or how the politicians are appeasing them. But in terms of the law enforcement and the interplay between the two, there's no controversy here. No, in fact, I think what Trump did here is quite consistent with the constitutional design. I mean, the Constitution does reserve to the states the primary job for public health and safety. But if the local government fails, or even worse yet, if they refuse to do their job, as seemed to have been the case here, then the federal government is there as a backup, as you said, to provide support, or even if, even if again, the state and locals can't do it, they, they have to step forward, because there's, we should remember there are other people's rights involved, too. 
There are the rights of protesters for free speech, but if they become violent and the city and state won't protect them, the innocent people who live in Portland, innocent people who live in Seattle have constitutional rights too. The, the government is not allowed to just step aside and let its favorite groups commit violence against other people. Uh, this is a lesson of the Reconstruction. And, the, and the, after the Civil War, there were Southern states that wanted to step aside and, set, and let the Ku Klux Klan do what they wanted to to the freed slaves. And the federal government under President Grant went in and stopped them. When you talk uh, your book, A Defender in Chief, Donald Trump's Fight for Presidential Power, uh, this was a topic that Joe Biden covered it, 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 briefly in his recent uh, press avail where he said, uh, you know, he's a consensus builder. He knows how to bring people together in the Senate and on the Hill and so on and so forth. You know, customary political path. But he said President Trump has tried to do everything by executive order, you know, implying uh, that he's acted unconstitutionally. And in point of fact, um, where he's uh, uh, done something by executive order that uh, opponents of the order don't like, I mean, he has been routinely taken to court, and frankly, uh, he's been routinely enjoined by federal court. Some would argue too much so. Some would argue the the extraordinary reach of the judiciary in terms of expanding its power at the expense of the executive. Yeah, exactly. What I go through in the book is I try to show that these claims that Tr- President Trump has been exercising presidential power illegally are unfounded, that for the most part, he is trying to use the powers of office and defend the office from encroachment by Congress or by these judges you mentioned who try to stop nationwide the operations of the federal government are uh, things that presidents have long done and go back, all, again, all the way to President Washington. And, and actually, if you think about it, the Obama administration was equally, if not more, aggressive in using executive orders. The one I would mention is this order called DACA, where President Obama said, I and I have a lot of sympathy for these people, too. Uh, President Obama said, I want these uh, dreamers to be able to stay in the country, people who are brought here as children in violation of the immigration laws, but through no fault of their own. The statute doesn't say that. Congress didn't amend the immigration laws uh, to say that. And so President Obama just said, well, I'm going to create that program anyway by not enforcing the law. President Trump came in and he tried to end that executive order. I think rightly so. He said, we're going to go back to enforcing the law. And the Supreme Court, remarkably, just a few weeks ago, right. I, I, I was shocked, said, no, you, you, President Trump, keep enforcing that Obama order. So who was acting more aggressively there, Obama or Trump? Obama or Roberts or Trump, I would say Obama and Roberts, that, that decision, right? I mean, you can, do, you can issue an executive order that's enforced illegally, unconstitutionally, but the subsequent president can rescind an unconstitutional executive order. I mean, it's the most amazing decision. Yeah, usually that's the main check on president's executive orders is that the next president can always undo it. But here, exactly, you have a case where Chief Justice John Roberts joined with the four liberal justices of the court to force a president, here President Trump, to keep doing something unconstitutional. I think all because they wanted to reach this political outcome, which a lot of Americans like, which is to keep the DACA program in existence. So I've argued that well, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. There's not one kind of constitution that applies to Obama and a different one, a narrow one that applies to Trump. And so President Trump should and could use that power, too, to change immigration law and make the immigration system skills based or reward people who bring assets to the United States or people who get PhDs in computer science at American universities uh, rather than 
Obama's favorite groups. He is John Yu. He's the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley. His new book, Defender in Chief, Donald Trump's Fight for Presidential Power. Professor Yu, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the show. Following up on our conversation with uh, Berkeley Law Professor John Yu, uh, Carl Rove actually had a, uh, a really good piece in the Wall Street Journal about uh, the rioters in. Uh, the Pacific Northwest, attacking more than a courthouse. And specifically, he was talking about Seattle. Uh, He writes about the U.S. attorney for the Western District of Washington, Brian Moran, who explained why additional federal agents had been summoned to Seattle after rioters broke into the federal courthouse there, set fire and tagged the walls with graffiti. Did Mayor Jenny Durkin say anything about that? Uh, You know, something that is offensive even to... uh, Democrats like Ted Van Dyke, who we spoke with in the first hour of the show, you know, her this is a dry run to martial law. No, Brian Moran, the U.S. attorney, explaining why federal agents were summoned to Seattle, this federal courthouse. Moran drew attention to the namesake of that courthouse, William Kenzo Nakamura. And maybe the rioters uh, did America service accidentally by uh, introducing William Kenzo Nakamura to America, and thanks to Carl Rove and Brian Moran, the U.S. attorney, for raising the profile on the namesake of that courthouse. Nakamura, the son of Japanese immigrants, was 20 when he and his family were interned along with other West Coast Japanese Americans by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt in February 42. Yet the next year, after he had been interned by his government, Nakamura took the oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestics. He joined the U.S. Army. He joined the U.S. Army's famed 442nd Regimental Combat Team, composed entirely of Japanese Americans. On July 4th of 1944, in central Italy, Private First Class Nakamura attacked and destroyed an enemy machine gun nest and then volunteered to cover his platoon's withdrawal, engaging a second machine gun before being killed. He posthumously received the Medal of Honor, one of 21 soldiers in the 442nd to be so decorated. Again, comprised completely, that regiment comprised completely of Japanese Americans. U.S. Attorney Moran decried the people who attacked the Nakamura Courthouse, saying that they are not protesting anything. They seek only to disrupt and destroy, and through their acts, they dishonor Private Nakamura's memory and his extraordinary sacrifice for his country. Yeah. What a wonderful moment to stand up and remind people about uh, the people that we have honored, rightly so, in this country. And that uh, per the fallacy of G.K. Chesterton's fence, you don't just go take down a fence without knowing why it was put there in the first place. Now, this is a more obvious example, but you're they're attacking a federal courthouse because they think they're starting a revolution, attacking the federal government, protesting for general generic Uh, undefined injustice in America, and yet they're disgracing an American patriot, an American hero who was subject to real oppression 
as opposed to sanction lawlessness in a place like Seattle by the political power structure there, and yet served and died for this country in the greatest in in in, in World War Two, uh, you know, part of the greatest generation, William Kenzo Nakamura. This is Dan Proud. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Again, follow us, danprofshow.com, on social media, at Dan Prof Show. Uh, we spoke about uh, Jeff Bezos' testimony a little bit earlier in the program, really at the top of the program. And I thought that was important. Perhaps the best moment of the, uh, the entire proceeding was to hear Jeff Bezos' personal story, which a lot of people didn't know. I really didn't know the full extent of it. Uh, really a wonderful American story, unique American story, as I said, in addition to uh, hearing from Jim Jordan on the matter of the targeting of conservatives, the ability and stated desire, previously stated desire to impact the 2020 election by these tech juggernauts. But I wanted to uh, switch gears and tackle another topic. And I don't know if this rises to the level of tobacco company executives denying before Congress that nicotine is addictive, but it's pretty close. The question posed to Cook at Apple and Pinchai at Google and Zuckerberg and Bezos does China steal U.S. technology? Uh, I don't know of specific cases where we uh, have been stolen from uh, by the government. So you don't believe that the Chinese government's stealing technology from U.S. companies, or you're just saying that not from yours? I'm saying uh, I, I know of no case on ours where it occurred, which is I can only speak to firsthand knowledge. Mr. Pichai, do you believe that the Chinese government steals technology from United States companies? Uh, Congressman, uh, uh, I have no first-hand knowledge of uh, any information stolen from Google in this regard. Mr. Zuckerberg? Congressman, I think it's well-documented that the Chinese government steals technology from American companies. Thank you. Mr. Bezos? I have heard many reports of that, and I I haven't seen it personally, but I've heard many reports of it. So of all the different products that Amazon carries, you haven't seen that in any of the, the companies that sell products on Amazon or your company yourself? Oh, well, certainly there are uh, knockoff products, if that's what you mean. And there are counterfeit products and all of that. But the Chinese, if the answer is the Chinese government stealing technology, that's the thing I've read reports of uh, and, and but don't have uh, personal experience. Yeah, OK. Um, uh, Zuckerberg, the only one willing to make a definitive statement of the obvious and the well-documented. Uh, the others, uh, boy, uh, the answers certainly call into question the uh, relationship with China. And uh, just what just how compromised some of these companies may be for access to the Chinese market, not unlike the NBA. That doesn't mean they should be subjected to antitrust prosecution, nor does their leftist politics mean they should be subjected to antitrust prosecution. But I have to say the lack of candor in moments, much like Jack Dorsey uh, in Twitter when he appeared before Congress and uh, kept saying technical glitches with respect to shadow banning. Uh, for Republican members of Congress uh, is not credible. And um, your credibility, I would think, is something that you would want to guard jealously when you're potentially facing federal action that could jeopardize the viability 
or at least vitality of your company. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by Will Reinhardt. He's a senior fellow at the Center for Growth and Opportunity, former director of technology and innovation policy at the American Action Forum. Will, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dan. And um, you uh, opined in the Wall Street Journal about uh, the uh, those who promote breaking up big tech, and, and I'm not one of them, and I think you lay out a number of compelling arguments. Yeah. Uh, and, and Jeff Bezos and others did, too, just talking about how uh, much competition there is in their marketplaces, about how many 1.7 million small, medium-sized businesses that sell products via Amazon and so on and so forth. So there, yeah. there, there's a lot of data there. But just starting with sort of the credibility question, they're not doing themselves any great service, uh, except perhaps with uh, the case of Zuckerberg, with their answers to that question, are they? Yeah, I think this is this is often the tension, right? When you're a um, an executive and you're hauled before uh, Congress and you're in a hearing, uh, it's you know you're you're trying not to say anything that's going to get you in trouble, you know, in the in the future. And so a lot of times these executives really will be pretty limited in their responses and, and effectively try to you know try to force off some of those questions for um, for the you know for the further questions and answers that will that will come. And I actually prefer to look at those. You know, it's actually the written answers and the written testimony. I think is actually much much better. You know, having been in the hot seat before and having been in a hearing, sometimes even when you're thinking through like the questions yourselves are like, well, I really don't necessarily I'm not necessarily comfortable with saying, you know, X, Y or Z. And so they'll kind of push it off into, uh, like, like I said, into these further questions that will uh, that will probably come out in about I, I would expect like two months or so. So, you know, the representatives will lay out a whole series of other questions and they're usually pretty long the last time zuckerberg was was uh in front of congress it's something like 200 pages i think they released and i i think those are actually really key to look at as well because they will have to answer all those answers or all those questions rather and and those will actually be really telling on what's actually going on uh behind the scenes of these companies yeah although uh, they risk becoming like caricatures of themselves risk their own sort of uh, reputation yeah. with some of these answers like the to, uh, you know my comparison perhaps a bit unfairly to the tobacco company execs but um i wanted to get to a, a point that you made with respect to uh, breaking up uh these tech companies as uh, many on the left and and some on the right have advocated uh, and you yeah. and, and it's a reminder that government is a blunt instrument and uh, p- yeah. particularly with complicated uh, businesses of these sizes. You know, what, what's one of the fundamental problems that's lost in the discussion about the how these tech companies operate when it comes to thinking about, well, we'll just allow them to do this and not that. Yeah, my the, the real thing that I have been interested in, at least in the you know, the recent past is trying to understand just technically speaking how we would even do this. So these companies aren't really like the previous companies that were, you know, that, that had antitrust suits brought against them. When you think of like the classic examples, right? You think of Standard Oil is, is really one of them and they in AT and T. Effectively both of these companies were effectively holding companies. You know, they they were larger um, uh, national companies, but in, in effect, there was constituent parts all over the United States. You know, you had, you know, where I grew up, it was Ameritech. Um, and so, and you know, SBC and you had, um, you know, Telecom West. So all of the kind of constituent parts that eventually, uh, were, you know, were obviously part of, say, AT&T were, were basically regionally divided. That doesn't really exist when you're talking about Facebook and Google. These are these are highly integrated firms. They're you know obviously they're global and and more importantly this kind of technology, the back end technology of you know of of data really integrates within the front end technology where users users integrate. And so 
separating that out and figuring out then how to regulate those companies afterwards is actually just a very, very hard technical problem. Um, it effectively has happened once in the past, and there's really one good company where we can kind of look and see if it was effective. That, you know, I keep on bringing it up. It was called American Tobacco, since you're bringing up tobacco companies. Yeah. Um, and, and what happened afterwards was just it, the, the, what was hoped for was better competitive outcomes, but really you just did not see that. And that's because the firm is really was quite advanced at the time. And it's actually, it looked more like a modern company than, than effectively, you know, AT&T and, and Standard Oil when they were also broken up. Right. And, 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 the, and I, I, I want to get to the AT&T and, and the, the, the idea, look, yeah. uh, antitrust policy is supposed to address consumer harm. And what you're suggesting yeah. is these antitrust prosecutors actually produce the consumer harm, relatively speaking. And that was the case in AT&T as well in terms of reducing competition. And thus innovation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and there was a whole bunch of limitations that were put on the, you know, on the, the companies afterwards. And that also limited effectively cellular phones from being developed. So there's a whole bunch of other things you have to do in, in order to break up these companies. You know, it's not just you're not just going to have a singular event where you break up these companies. That means a continual, you know, some sort of, of agency that's continually looking over the shoulders and ensuring that they aren't getting into specific markets. So that it's not just the beginning of regulation, right? It, or it's, it's not the end of regulation. It's the, the very beginning of regulation of these companies. And and, and the result uh, in the AT&T case was uh, a, uh, a a lag in uh, cell service taking off. Uh, it, in other words, it took off much later than it otherwise would have if not for the, as you said, the ongoing uh, breakup of, of AT&T. Yeah, yeah. So throughout the 80s, there's at least this, you know, the beginning pushes of, of cellular technology and, and had some of these what were called waivers been granted. Probably we probably would have seen something a little bit different in the 80s. I mean, American, um, you know, telecom companies are still you know among the best in the world. So in a way, we've recovered from that. But it was only after all of these waivers were granted and the, uh, you know, the agencies at the time and, and a whole change of the law occurred in 1996, right before, you know, the telecommunications revolution really occurred. So in a way, it was okay that the regulatory structure that existed, but I'm not so sure in the future that we'll be as prescient. You know, we won't necessarily know that, that the next wave of technology is coming sure. and that these regulatory structures that we put on these companies, you know, these, these new tech giants will, will effectively stop them from being able to compete and to shift into something different. Well, and, and again, even and as you uh, document, the breakup of AT&T started in 1982, the Telecom Act uh, came in 1996. Yeah. So, I mean, 14 years is not an inc- inconsequential amount of time in the, you know people's lives. No, it's not. It's not. Uh, he is Will Reinhardt, Senior Fellow at the Center for Growth and Opportunity and former Director of Technology and Innovation Policy at the American Action Forum. Will, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Take care. Show.com. Sports and politics and sports and politics and sports and politics and intersection. Arrogance and ignorance, arrogance, ignorance, and arrogance and ignorance. Intersection. Yeah, sports and politics, uh, our latest installment. Normally, this is at the Collegiate, or even more normally, 
professional level, but uh, this is at the high school level because uh, in Illinois, where I live, uh, Governor Jelly Belly Pritzker made a big announcement yesterday about uh, high school sports. And uh, as normal in these times of COVID, the uh, nomenclatura has come up with a Rube Goldberg scheme to decide which sports fall into manufactured categories with associated levels of participation and activity. Yeah, I even unpack that statement I just made. Governor Pritzker, who is about uh, 1,000 pounds, uh, offered uh, this uh, in explaining the very, very difficult decision he had to make, you know, as a former standout youth athlete. I'm kidding. I know our hearts break when we hear the words restrictions, especially when it comes to our children's love for their sports. Whether this year is their first time on the court or it's their senior year season, this isn't news that anyone wants to hear. But this virus remains dangerous to kids and parents and grandparents and teachers and coaches. And for right now, this is the best thing that we can do for the health and safety of our families under the current circumstances. All of that's false. And by the way, with respect to the recent case spikes, about 80 percent of the hospitalizations, 80 percent of the hospitalization increase nationally contained in three states, Florida, Texas and California. And yet uh, the lockdown politicians and their media handmaidens are still in full fear monger mode. And Pritzker, along with uh, the Cuomo's and the Whitmer's and the Newsom's of the world, are Pritzker right at the top of that list, right in that first tier of fear mongers, if you will. And the reason I I raise this is because if Illinois is doing something that is wildly confusing and largely capricious, then you can be certain other states or localities will be doing it as well. I don't know what every state and locality is doing doing with respect to high school sports. So, So some of this may ring familiar. Wouldn't surprise me if this was lifted from some of his fellow Democrat socialist governors. So here's what he did. There are risk levels, so there's categories on this matrix, and then you have to uh, uh, cross-intersect the categories with the levels of participation. So the categories are three, high risk level, medium risk level, low risk level. And then the levels of activity are four, level one, no contact practices and trainings only, two, intra-team scrimmages allowed, no competitive play. Three, intra-conference or region play, state or league championship games allowed for low-risk sports only. And four, tournaments, out-of-conference league play, multi-team meets, out-of-state play allowed, championship game uh, games allowed. So, uh, you, you know, you have to first make sure you laminate this and then make sure you tag your kid with his category and level so everybody knows how much of a social pariah to treat him as. Okay, and then you go through this list of what sports does your kid play? High risk level sports, boxing, competitive cheer, competitive dance, football, hockey, lacrosse, martial arts, rugby, frisbee, ultimate frisbee, really, uh, and wrestling. Medium sports. And so high, high means no contact practices and trainings only. Huh. Medium basketball, fencing, flag football, paintball, racquetball, soccer, volleyball, water polo, wheelchair, basketball. So medium is no contact practices and training only. Inter-team scrimmage is allowed, no competitive play. That's going to be something this year uh, to have no basketball, no competitive basketball, no basketball games. 
say, in the Chicago public school system. That is uh, not going to aid the desire for a reduction in street violence. I guarantee you that uh, with kids not having constructive activities to do, not to mention innocent victims because people are out on the streets when they could be playing basketball. These aren't, uh, you know, this is not a midnight basketball advocacy of some sort of panacea, obviously, but there is a point about kids being in constructive activities outside of the school day, particularly when the school day isn't really much of a school day anymore either because they're in these, you know, one day on, two days off kind of classroom protocols. It's ridiculous. And then you get all the way to uh, the uh, lower risk sports, archery, badminton, baseball, bass fishing. And then there's qualifiers even here. It's lower if limited number of individuals on a boat to allow for social distancing in the bass fishing. Otherwise, you get kicked up to medium. Other lower bowling, climbing, crew, cross, country, cycling, golf, gymnastics, horseback riding, so on and so forth. Uh, it is really remarkable, isn't it? And also the lack of appreciation for the importance of sports. And so I go to this uh, favorite column I routinely invoke, uh, the Future View column in the Wall Street Journal. This week, they asked students about college sports. And so this is, it's a little bit different than talking about high school sports, but there's a lot of parallels. Uh, what do you think of your school's reopening plan? As the, uh, I mean, what do, what do you think of uh, universities' decision to cut athletics programs that's happening or that's at, le- at least being discussed? And I thought some of the answers were, um, as usual, well, thoughtful, well-reasoned. One uh, perspective from a history Ph.D. candidate at the University of Texas through four years of Division one cross country and track. My teammates and I ran thousands of miles training day in and day out thousands of miles training day in and day out to compete a grind like this imparts solidarity, perseverance and personal responsibility values that serve student athletes long after they graduate. Contrast these with theories peddled in the classroom that teach students they're powerless victims entitled to the fruits of somebody else's labor. Luckily, there's no room for intersectionality in a race, only hard work. Right. The meritocracy aspect of sports, sort of the last frontier for meritocracy, Uh, but also solidarity, perseverance, personal responsibility through training. And, you know, not everybody can go on even at the club level to play sports at at, uh, the collegiate level. And those same values that you learn, those same benefits that you gain, that's being described by this division one athlete are present in the participation in high school sports and extracurriculars as well. Mm-hmm. Another uh, perspective from a undergrad politics and philosophy major at Northeastern University. Uh, more than helping athletes cultivate character, colleges have a broader moral reason to keep athletics around. While universities are places for research and discovery of knowledge, they're also dedicated to its preservation and transmission. Much of this knowledge is academic, but some is cultural, the arts, for instance. Sports also counts among the cultural knowledge and experience that colleges and universities are charged with protecting. Mm -hmm. And then also the uh, communal nature of sport, the fellowship. Uh, This from a UW-Madison history major. You wake up on Saturday morning, the whole town is decked in red, electricity is in the air. People flock from all around the state and beyond, descending upon the stadium and the surrounding parking lots. That's what a typical Saturday looks like in Madison come the fall, and undoubtedly in hundreds of other college towns across the country, give or take the red. For many folks, myself included, game days have been the highlight of the college experience, producing some of the fondest memories we'll ever have. 
taking that away from students now and in the future would be doing them a disservice. There's something special about college athletics and pulling for your school. Right. And there's something special about high school athletics and pulling for your kid. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show and uh, the cancel culture and Catholicism. And it's not, it's specific to Catholicism, but it's also a more general statement about uh, the allowing sentimental barbarians to run roughshod over uh, people of faith and actually the faith tradition itself. It's been very disquieting as a Catholic, the incidents like Father Rothrock in Indiana, Father Maloney at MIT, and now Flannery O'Connor at Loyola University, Maryland where you have uh, men of faith, men who are supposed to be above the trappings of this world and the passions of the time to stand for truth, doing just the opposite. And so we have the president of Loyola Maryland University, Father Brian Linane. During recent conversations around racism, one of the issues that caught the attention of our community was the name of Flannery O'Connor, Flannery O'Connor Residence Hall. Information coming forward recently about O'Connor, a Catholic American writer of the 20th century, has revealed that some of her personal writings reflected a racist perspective. The building names we use at Loyola should declare to our students and entire community what sort of values we esteem and hope to instill in our graduates. A residence hall must be a home and a haven for those who live there, and its name should reflect Loyola's Jesuit values. We are renaming that residence hall for Sister Thea Bowman, a servant of God whose cause for canonization has been endorsed by the U.S. Catholic Conference of Bishops. Sister Thea, who lived from 1937 to 1990, was the granddaughter of slaves, a member of the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. She was an educator, speaker, African-American activist. She inspired people to work to eliminate racism and work for justice. And that's all well and good. He goes on, I am forming a presidential renaming committee to evaluate all philanthropic and honorifically named spaces on campus. Of course you are. What did Thomas Sowell call a committee the least intelligent form of life? Mm -hmm. Um, Two things uh, strike me about uh, that statement. One is the abject ignorance of the president of Loyola, Maryland University. Uh, Loyola University, Maryland. You're just now hearing about Flannery (laughs) O'Connor? It's sort of remarkable. It's come to my attention, this Flannery O'Connor. She's not a contemporary writer, Father. Number one. Number two, there is uh, much debate about... um, Flannery O'Connor's writing. She was a brilliant writer who uh, unfortunately didn't live as uh, long as we would have liked based on her productivity. And uh, uh, as uh, uh, a piece on her by Lorraine Murray in the Catholic Catholic thing outlines, yes, she uh, used the N word in some of her letters and stories, as well as the term white trash, not shocking for someone born in 1925 in Georgia. But to call her a racism is an unfair reading of her uh, racist is an unfair reading of her work. Perhaps those uh, targeting Flannery O'Connor now more annoyed by the fact that she had cultural Marxists like them sussed out perfectly in Mystery and Manners. Uh, she offered one of the most uh, stark lines about the sophisticated barbarian, as I like to term them, that uh, sentimentalism ultimately leads to the gas chamber and um 
perhaps that's the path that we're on now. For more on all of this, we're pleased to be joined by David Devil. He's a senior contributor at the Imaginative Conservative, editor of Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture, and visiting professor at the University of St. Thomas. David, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Dan. Glad to be with you. What about, uh, I know you wrote about uh, Father Maloney at MIT being forced out after um, making the uh, factual point that George Floyd uh, shouldn't have been killed, obviously, but he was indeed a person whose life was not conspicuous for virtue. I mean, his arrest record speaks to that, but nonetheless, that that is verboten. What about Flannery O'Connor at, at uh, Loyola, Maryland? Well, I mean, this is a really disappointing thing that, as you know, as you point out that, uh, you know, some of the people talking about this don't seem to know anything about her. But, it, you know, I guess what's most bothersome to me and many other scholars and uh, and great fans of Flannery O'Connor is that for those of us who've read her, we know that she struggled with racism. She was born and raised in a particular time and place, and she herself confessed that sometimes the Christian in her struggled with the Southern white lady who was uh, trained to see black people as inferior. And I'm I'm quoting uh, my friend uh, uh, Jessica Hooten Wilson at the University of Dallas, who's written on this at First Things. Um, but anybody who's read O'Connor knows that uh, her letters, uh, her collected letters, the habit of being, I have friends who say they're a kind of Bible, and in there she confesses these things. Are we going to to uh, condemn anybody who ever struggles with problems, uh, especially those who are loved by many writers? Many black writers, indeed, think that uh, Flannery O'Connor is a great writer, and they see the, the the problems in her, but they also see what's what's noble and what is trying to to struggle against these uh, unhealthy attitudes. Yeah, if we're going to do this, nobody is going to survive. Uh, well, I want to pick up on this, continue our conversation about Flannery O'Connor and the implications, uh, more with uh, Professor David Deevil, senior contributor at the Imagine a Conservative, visiting professor at the University of St. Thomas right after this. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the program. We're speaking with David Devil, senior contributor at the Imaginative Conservative, editor of Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture, and visiting professor at the University of St. Thomas. We were talking about Flannery O'Connor and uh, her cancellation at uh, Loyola University, Maryland, a Jesuit school. Uh, and uh, uh, this uh, piece I was referencing in uh, at the thecatholicthing.org uh, also cites one of Flannery O'Connor's letters where she uh, described a personal revelation that uh, took place for her on a bus where the bus driver told the rear occupants who were black, all right, you stovetype blondes, get on, get on back there. O'Connor's reaction, I became an integrationist. So you were talking, uh, Professor, about her struggles with racism and, 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 and being immersed in Southern culture, you know, in the 20s and 30s, 1920s and 1930s. But, but you know, it's clear from her writings that she had great sympathy for those who were being oppressed and that she was trying to go through her own reconciliation and what's the best way to relieve this oppression. She she talked about, you know, maybe it's better because of the violence of the Ku Klux Klan, that things happen 
through, uh, through normative means, cultural means rather than legal means, that it would be more effective in relieving the oppression and so on and so forth. These are not uh, easy answers in a time of such oppression. No. And many people will bring up the fact that, you know, she uh, she had an opportunity to have James Baldwin, the black writer, come to her house. And right. she said, well, you know, I would do that in, in New York, but not not here in Georgia. And people say, oh, well, how horrible. But part of the problem with this is this uh, this tendency, I think it's a very human tendency, but it's a very particularly modern tendency to think, well, I would have been I would have been heroic in those situations. And I think the reality is most of us would not. We would struggle. We would try to want to get along with people. We would want to try to do things. I think in her fiction, uh, she has a number of wonderful stories. Uh, One of the stories I've loved since I was a teenager was Everything That Rises Must Converge, which tells a story very much like the one that, that you were talking about from her letters that happened to her, An Incident on a Bus. And it's essentially about a, a woman who is a racist who has a kind of comeuppance and realizes things just as she's dying. All of O'Connor's stories end in these sort of uh, you know, catastrophes, but they're catastrophes that are meant to be revelations. Many of us don't have those kinds of revelations in our lives. Uh, and and we and we suddenly think that, well, I, you know, I would be heroic when in reality, most of us go along with what everybody else is doing. And so the idea that we would be better and that we should tear down her statue, I think, is is utterly destructive. Yeah. And most people go along, as we're seeing right now, with all kinds of uh, uh, vandal vandalism and other violent behavior, people in positions of authority, rationalizing in a way, effectively excusing it. But. Uh, you know, so to your point, but I, I wanted to, to pull back, though, too, because we were talking specifically about the church, um, about, you know, Catholic uh, writers like Flannery O'Connor, um, men of the cloth like Father Daniel Maloney. H- how would you assess the Catholic Church's response in these times to the incursion of government into into religion generally, but the Catholic Church specifically, since that's uh, Catholic thought is what you uh, what you write yeah. about. Yeah, no, I mean, I think this is one of the problems that we have these days is that we have too few bishops who are willing to stand up. I mean, if you think about even the uh, the approach to the regulations about reopening states, uh, in many cases, churches were were forbidden to reopen on the same grounds that malls and restaurants were. Um, in fact, my Archbishop uh, Bernard Hebde here in the Twin Cities was the only one in the country who actually fought back and said, you know what, we, you know, we're going to open on the same level as everybody else is. And, and initially he said, we'll open at 33% capacity and we'll follow all the regulations that everybody else says about sanit- sanitizing the place. The governor then kind of backed down and said, well, only 25%. And so the, the archbishop, I think, probably wisely said, okay, deal, we'll go with this. But but that was we were the only archdiocese in the country that fought back in any way. Many people have now heard about um, John MacArthur in California, the evangelical minister who's fighting back on these, and a number of, of these others are. But I, I think that too many Catholics have become too comfortable. Uh, you know, we're, Catholics think of themselves, well, now we're fully Americans, and we don't want to be seen as strangers. But the problem is, if you go along with an America that's, that's starting to wound itself and get sick— you're not helping, but you're instead just simply becoming part of the problem. This speaks to uh, another piece that you penned over at the Imagine 
the imaginative conservative.org, the imaginative conservative blog, uh, about, uh, uh, about heroism. <laughs> and um, yes, uh, as you point out, uh, no doubt our valuation of heroes has suffered the effects of inflation these days, right? You're a hero just if you happen to be in a particular profession rather than based on your behavior as that professional or just as a human being. But um, what you uh, what you suggest is um, maybe we're not lacking uh, in heroes so much as we are lacking people serving as civilizing influences. Yeah, I I think that one of the things that we think of is that what we need are heroes to do special things. But really what our country is lacking in so many ways uh, are the ordinary virtues, the ordinary fortitude of getting married, having children serving in in less, uh, I don't know, sexy ways, uh, our country's good. Uh, I, I talk in that essay about about new statistics showing that our fertility rates in America are dropping yet again and have been since 2008. And what many people say they want, oh, I want to have more children, I want to be married, I want to live this life, they're not doing. And I, I think that the problem is, is that we have a real atmosphere of fear surrounding not just speaking out, but even doing those ordinary things. What will people think of me if, if I'm one of those breeders? And unfortunately, that's the kind of thing that may not be a catastrophe immediately, but over the long haul, it creates a lot of problems when you don't have those children. I mean, I, you know, I often ask my friends who are on the left, you know, you like these, these, big, uh, these big government programs to, to care for people, but who funds those? If you don't have the children to do that, right, those things cannot be funded. There won't be the people, nor will there be the, the tax revenue to do these programs, even if you think they work. He is David Devil, senior contributor at the Imaginative Conservative, editor of Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture, and visiting professor at the University of St. Thomas. David Devil, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Dan. Glad to be with you. Take care. The more you'll know, this is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the show. I'm not so sure that uh, too many of my listeners will have to worry much about this, but uh, maybe your kids, friends, I don't know. Uh, maybe you're friends with Manti Teo. And uh, since he's been susceptible to fishing before, I want to introduce you to this concept I read about in Vice at Vice.com, appropriately so. Have you been woke-fished while dating? Woke-fished. You know what woke-fished is? Here's how you tell. Um, One, uh, the author of this piece, uh, recounting his own story, plus uh, some of the others. He was about, uh, or when I was about 17, he writes, uh, I decided to go vegan Anyway, I mentioned my new veganism to the guy I was seeing at the time, and to my surprise, he seemed really annoyed. He responded with an uninterruptible lecture on the importance of supporting British farmers. I can still remember one of those appalled, patronizing texts. Oh, God, you're not going to become one of these vegan feminists, are you? I was confused. He hadn't come across like someone who hated vegan feminists, so where did this come from? I ended things a little while later, which prompted a barrage of texts from him with a lot of derogatory language. It confirmed what I'd begun to suspect. As much as he realized, as much as he'd reeled me in with an outwardly woke persona, in reality we were never going to see eye to eye. 
I had been woke fished. <laughs> uh, woke fishing, uh, the definition I understand from this author is when people masquerade as holding progressive political views to ensnare potential partners. Yeah. A woke fish may at first present themselves as a protest attending sex positive, anti racist, intersectional feminist who drinks ethically sourced oat milk and has read the back catalog of Audre Lorde twice, but in reality, they don't give a blank. Or as is often the case, they're actively op- the opposite in their personal lives. It's sort of like catfishing, but specifically with political beliefs. All right. You've been warned. Uh, I can't say I've never been I- I've ever been conservative fished. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Here's another example. Uh, woke fishing can be particularly disturbing and damaging when those on the receiving end belong to marginalized groups themselves. Oh, sure. The fragility of it all. Hannah was in a relationship with her ex for six months. Like Tom, she thought her and her partner shared common ground to begin with. When we, uh, like Tom's previous example she gave, sorry for the lack of context. When she, uh, when we first started talking, he spoke about how awful he thought white, the whiteness of his education was <laughs> and how he wished the south of England, where he was from, was more diverse. But then qu- things quickly went downhill. He introduced me to his home friends as his dirty Arab girlfriend, quote unquote, and passed it off as a joke. Then one day he sat me down, started crying, and told me he used to be involved with Nazi groups. <laughs> How do you not pick up on this, Anna? Oh, my goodness. Uh, he said before he'd met me, he wouldn't have wanted to marry a non-white person because he thought mixed-race children were impure. She broke up with him shortly thereafter. How do you get six months in into a relationship with somebody and not pick up on uh, you know the neo-Nazi tendencies, for example? Good grief. Um this woke fishing, much like a Manti Teo's cat fishing incident from several years back. You remember the standout Notre Dame linebacker? It's just hard to believe people can fall for this stuff. I mean, you know, unless like you're the former director of the FBI, Jim Comey, and it's about Russian collusion. Thanks for joining us on another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow. the fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.